Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. This audio will cover Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 24. It deals with an incident in, probably in Perea, as A.T. Robertson says. Jesus is in the house of one of the leading big-shot Pharisees, and they were watching him closely to see if he had healed on the Sabbath, which he did. And then after that, at that meeting, because they were eating at a banquet, Jesus uses the banqueting occasion to give three parables about banquets. They taught different things, but they were all occasioned by that eating in the Pharisee's house. So we'll start with verses 1 and 2 in Luke 14. One Sabbath, when he went to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, that's Jesus went to eat, they were watching him, they were watching Jesus closely. The Pharisees were watching Jesus closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. Had dropsy, I think the King James has it. Now, Jesus is going, to, is going to heal this man. He did seven recorded miracles on the Sabbath, according to, to my NIV study Bible. Five of them are in Luke. Now, this healing on the Sabbath was a big deal in the New Testament. It was a focal point of attack against Jesus that he was ministering on the Sabbath, as the NIV study Bible points out. I'm going to skim through some scriptures here very quickly to show you how prominent this idea was. In Luke 6, verses 6 through 11, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was paralyzed. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely, just like they're watching him in the house of this leading Pharisee in Perea. This, in Luke 6, it was up in Galilee. But the Pharisees had the same attitude. They're watching him closely. Why? To see if he's going to heal on the Sabbath so they can condemn him. They were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a charge against him, and that Jesus healed him anyway. And they were filled with rage. What are we going to do to Jesus? Luke 14, well, that's where we are now. Let's go to Matthew 12, 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and that's when they picked grains and rubbed them out. And Jesus said, haven't you read in the law that on Sabbath days the priest and the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? In other words, they work on the Sabbath. Something greater than the simple is here. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, etc. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew 12:11 through 12, but he said to them, what man among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A man is worth far more than the sheep, so it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. And then, of course, we have the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, the man who was paralyzed, couldn't get in the water fast enough to get healed. And Jesus said, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly the man got well, picked up his mat and started to, to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. It is illegal for you to pick up your mat. Typical, harsh, arrogant, unfeeling, insensitive clods that the Pharisees were. Could care less that somebody has had the, one of the, the greatest miracle ever to happen in his life. And oh, it's illegal to pick up your mat on the Sabbath. So Jesus had to deal with this a lot. So here we have another instance here in Luke 14, verses 1 through 2. It's interesting that that term dropsy, the man that was there that had the dropsy that Jesus healed, that's a medical term that in Greek is, a, is found only there in Luke, which is reasonable because Luke is a doctor. He would know medical terms. Now why was the man with dropsy even there at the banquet of the leading Pharisee in his house, in the Pharisee's house? Well, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown speculate that the Pharisee probably brought the sick man there on purpose so Jesus would heal him and get himself in trouble. Now, that's pretty Machiavellian if that's true. Or it could have been a person not of the company who just showed up before the guests sat down, kind of like the 
the sinful woman in the in Simon the Pharisee's house who anointed Jesus' feet with oil and her tears. How did she get there? Well, I guess in that case, I guess she just walked in uninvited. But here it could be that this was a setup, a frame-up, trying to get Jesus in trouble. Now notice this is not just a Pharisee. This is a leading Pharisee in verse 1, which means that he was perhaps a ruler of a synagogue, maybe even a member of the Sanhedrin, the big council of Jerusalem. This is in Perea, which is fairly near Jerusalem. Now, of course, this was not just a regular sandwich meal, a brunch. This was a sit-down, festive, rich banqueting meal. It was a big deal, big meal. Now, they were maliciously watching Jesus to see if he would heal on the Sabbath, of course. But uh, naturally, the invitation was given with affected kindness. This is the typical hypocrisy of the Pharisees. We go to Luke chapter 14, verses 3 through 4. In response, in response to what? Well, in response to the fact that the Pharisees were watching him closely in order to see if he would heal. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. He took the man, healed him, and sent him away. Sent him away, which tends to show that he was probably not, he, he, came, he was either brought there for the purpose of getting healed, or he came, he, he crashed the party in order to get healed. He was not a member of the, of the party, the, the banqueting party. But at any rate, when Jesus asked the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not, they kept silent. Why? Well, before we get into that question, we notice that by asking them this in advance, Jesus was making it difficult for them to protest afterwards because they refused to answer. Therefore, when he healed the man, it was too late to say anything. They had their chance and they blew it. So they couldn't complain about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Now, when Jesus asked, he wasn't asking for information, obviously. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? I'm really not too sure of that. No, of course not. He knew, it was a rhetorical question. He knew that it was perfectly legal, legal, and so it was a rhetorical question that expected the answer of, yes, it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Jesus knew they were trying to catch him up, and so he asked this question. Now, why did they not answer Jesus, and why did Jesus know that they weren't going to answer him? Why did he know that he had them trapped? Because it was obviously not illegal to heal on the Sabbath, either under the Mosaic law or even the traditions of the rabbis. Even the rabbis themselves said it was okay to heal on the Sabbath. Now, there was a rule, and there's a question as to whether this rabbinic saying was before Christ or after Christ, but John Gill says that it was after Christ, and as a result, it might have been responding to Jesus' healing on the Sabbath. The rule was this. If a beast fall into a ditch or a pool of water, if food can be given it where it is, they feed it until the going out of the Sabbath. But if not, bolsters and pillars may be brought and put under it. And if it can come out, it may come out. In other words, if the donkey or the ox can't make it till Sunday, the next day, well, then you pull him out on Saturday and you're not violating the traditions of the elders. Why? Because you're going to lose the beast otherwise. And who's so it's all right to do good on a Sabbath in cases of emergency. It's all right to do good on the Sabbath in the case of a donkey. Why not of a human being who has dropsy? Adam Clark says that the saying was that this rabbinic rule, which I just read, was actually in place before Jesus came, and Jesus was appealing to it and said, "Look, even you guys do good on the Sabbath, so it's lawful." That's one, that's one reason they kept silent, is they knew that it was perfectly lawful under their traditions to heat on the Sabbath. But there's another possible reason 
that they kept silent, and that would be because they knew that they would look like SOBs if they said, well, no, we don't think it's you ought to heal this man with dropsy on the Sabbath. All these guests there would look and say, well, you sure don't care very much about sick people, do you, Mr. Big Shot Pharisee? <laughs> Adam Clark uh, agrees with that opinion. He said they knew that they would condemn themselves if they said, no, it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath. We go to Luke chapter 14, verses 5 through 6, and to them... To the Pharisees at the banquet there, he, Jesus, said, Which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? To this they could find no answer, because, of course, they'd pull him out on the Sabbath day. They're not going to take a chance that either their son or the ox is not going to live till Sunday so they could pull him out on a non-Sabbath day. They're going to pull him out immediately. Here's some, uh, there's no parallel. By the way, I hadn't mentioned this, but in Luke 14, 1 through 24, our passage of interest in this audio, there are no parallel passages. This is only in Luke. However, on other occasions, Jesus taught similar things. In Matthew 12, verses 11 through 12, we read this. But he, Jesus, said to them, What man among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A man is worth far more than a sheep. So it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Mark 3, verse 4. Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do what is good or to do what is evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, because it was lawful on the Sabbath to do good and to save life. And from that you could reasonably reason your way to the proposition that it was lawful to heal somebody on the Sabbath also, because healing is doing good. Even if it wasn't to save life, at least it was doing good. And so the Pharisees were dumbstruck. They could find no answer. By the way, there's a manuscript problem for son. Some manuscripts have donkey, as the NIV says. Which of you whose donkey or ox falls into a well doesn't make any difference. Son makes the, well, actually donkey actually makes the, makes it stronger because if, if, if you can pull a donkey out and do good on the Sabbath, I fortiori, you can heal a man on the Sabbath because the man's worth more than a donkey. But either way, the teaching is the same. You do good on the Sabbath when you have to. Now, to prove once again that the reason that the Pharisees at this banquet had no answer was because their rabbinic law, the traditions of the elders, not the Mosaic law, but the traditions of the elders also allowed doing good on the Sabbath. I'm going to back that up with a couple of quotes from John Gill. Here's what John Gill says on Mark 3, 4, parallel passage. Not, excuse me, not parallel passage, but a similar passage. He says that it was a maxim with the rabbis that to not save life when one could was the same as murder. Here's another quote from Gill. The justice, equity, mercy, mercy, and humanity that appeared in our Lord's reasonings and the cases he instanced in being agreeable to their own tenets and practices. In other words, Jesus' teaching being agreeable to their own tenets and practices, their mouths were shut up. So they themselves did good on the Sabbath. So they were hypocrites saying Jesus couldn't do it, but they could. And of course, if if healing on the Sabbath didn't violate the traditions of the Pharisees, well, a fortiori, they didn't violate the Mosaic law, of course, because the Mosaic law said you're not supposed to work on Saturday. It didn't say anything about not healing on Saturday, and healing is not considered work. Servile labor, as the King James puts it. So this, their silence indicated that they were too ashamed to follow out the implications of their heartless laws, <laughs> even though those heartless laws, they were heartless, but even the heartless laws had exceptions for compassion in there when things were necessary. All right, so Jesus, having shut the Pharisees up, now starts to give three parables 
that are occasioned by the idea of banquets because he was at a banquet. Now, again, the teachings are not the same in each of these parables, but, but they're all directed at the Pharisees, though. Chapter 14 of Luke, verses 7 through 11. He told a parable to those who were invited, to those big shots who were at the Pharisees' banquet there in his house somewhere in Perea. He told this parable when he, Jesus, noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves. Choose the best place. It's interesting that the guest came in and chose choose the best place. The host didn't see them, so I guess that was their custom. Verse 8, Jesus now gives the parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you, both of you may come and say to you, give your place to this man, and then in humiliation you will proceed to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and recline in the lowest place so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. You will then be honored in the presence of all the other guests. In other words, don't be presumptuous. Don't rest on your laurels and think you're a big shot and you you deserve it. Jesus concludes this parable by saying this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this, of course is one of the basic teachings of the scripture, humility. And this was something that not only the Pharisees, but even Jesus' disciples had trouble with because at the Lord's Supper, Luke chapter 22, verse 24, we read this, Then a dispute also rose among them about who should be considered the greatest. Remember James and John and their mother, please, who's going to sit at your right hand and your left hand in the kingdom of God? Total pride and arrogance. And Jesus humbled them pretty quick. That's not going to happen, boys. So this idea of humility, and I I think to be more specific about it, he was talking to Pharisees who were about to be displaced by Gentiles. So the Pharisees are saying, look at us. We have a big big shot. We, We can sit in honorable places at our banquets. But Jesus is saying, no, in the banquet of the kingdom of God, you Pharisees are going to get displaced, and you're not going to be sitting at the places of the honor. The Gentiles are going to be there. So let's look at this idea of humility. Who he humbles himself will be exalted. If you start out being humble, Jesus will lift you up. If you start out being proud, Jesus will take you down. All right, I'm going to scan through some scriptures real quick to show you how widespread this idea is in the New Testament. Luke 11, verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, you love the front seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Luke 18, 14. I tell you, This one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus uses the same word there. I don't remember the occasion of this. I think that's the Pharisee was praying. Look at me. I'm a big shot Pharisee when I pray. Luke 20, verse 46. Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplaces, the front seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. Second Chronicles seven fourteen through fifteen, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face. If they humble themselves and turn, my eyes will be open and attentive to them. Proverbs three thirty four. He mocks those who mock, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs twenty five six through seven. Don't brag about yourself before the king, and don't stand in the place of the great. For it is better for him to say to you, come up here, than to demote you in plain view of a noble. That's so close to what Jesus is talking about in this parable. You remember, Jesus knows the Old Testament backwards and forwards. It could be he's referring to this proverb. 
from his memory. Matthew 18:4. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 23:12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4:10. Humble yourself before the Lord, and He will exalt you. First Peter 5:6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that He may exalt you at the proper time. So you see. This is a key tenet of the kingdom of God. Humility, folks. Humility. We are all very, very proud in, in our flesh. And part of your progressive sanctification is to be humbled. And believe me, if you don't humble yourself, God is perfectly able to dream up circumstances in your life where you will be humbled externally if you can't do it yourself internally. You will be humbled because Jesus honored humility. Now he it did mean he doesn't honor being ground down in the in the dirt and never being lifted up because it says well, after you humble yourself you're going to be exalted. It's not that he wants you to be a piece of dirt. It's just that he doesn't want you to lift yourselves out of the dirt. He wants Jesus to lift you out of the dirt. Jesus in this parable, who was saying take a low place so that the the host will put you in a high place, which therefore you're not risking being humiliated by being sent down to a low place. That that. That idea was also in the rabbinic literature. The rabbis taught their students this, according to Adam Clark. Here's a quote. Rabbi Akiba said, Go two or three seats lower than the place that belongs to thee, and sit there till they say unto thee, Go up higher. But do not take the uppermost seat, lest they say unto thee, Come down, for it is, it is better that they should say unto thee, Go up, go up, than that they should say, Come down, come down. Luke 14, verse 12. He, Jesus, also said to the one who had invited him, that's the leading Pharisee, When you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. Now, this is the second of the three parables he's going to give at this Pharisee's dinner. Jesus just gave advice to the guest, telling them to be humble, take a humble place. Now he's going to give advice to the host. And his basic advice is don't invite your big shot friends your brothers, your elders, people who are close to you, to you. He says, because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. That's, that is, in the English, is difficult to understand. What it means is they might invite you back and you would be repaid in full and not get anything else in addition. That's what he means. He means don't merely invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you meant don't absolutely invite your friends, your brothers, and your relatives, your your rich neighbors, then Jesus would be saying, do something socially that will get everybody angry at you for no reason. In other words, be a snob. Just just stiff your friends and your relatives. Well, Jesus is not saying that. That would be very bad if he meant absolutely don't invite anybody. It would destroy friendships, as John Gill points out. What he means is, is that if you do that, you will get repaid only with another banquet. But you'll get nothing in the resurrection because you didn't invite the poor, the lame, and the halt. In other words... When, when Jesus says they might invite you back and you would be repaid, it means you would be repaid in full. That's it. Nothing left. Nothing else left to be paid to you back. Here's a similar idea that Jesus gave in this parable that he also gave in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 46 through 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Everybody loves to suck up to everybody by giving them these fancy banquets. So, you know, this idea of of 
well, well, we'll get to the main point of this parable by reading the next verses. The main point is give, invite somebody to a banquet with no thought of getting repaid. Verse 13 and 14 in chapter 14 of Luke. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, see, this is the point, is you give with no thought of getting back. Now, this is difficult because God has worked into the universe a principle that if you give, you will be blessed. I mean, that's just the way it is. He likes giving, and when you give... God gives back to you, and pretty soon, if you're not careful, you'll start thinking, I'm going to give this money because I know God will give it back to me. Right, the same thing with people. I'm going to give this something to a person, not because I care about them, not because I want them to be blessed. It's because they'll give something back to me, and I'll be blessed, which, of course, is the opposite of giving. It's selfish. I think I lived in China for so long, for over two decades, about 23 years, and... I cannot tell you how this idea of giving is woven in, into the warp of their consciousness. You can't give something to a Chinese person and they will quit functioning until they give you something back. They will quit eating. Their respiration processes will shut down. They won't be able to think. They won't be able to sleep. They've got to give it back to you. And we're not used to thinking like that. We've got a little bit of that in us, but nothing like the Chinese. I remember one time I would always give my TAs, my teaching assistants, as I was teaching college over there, I'd always give them a present at the end of the semester as a reward for them doing real well. And I think that's just good business practice. You know, it just makes people happy. I would not give the gift to them beforehand because then that would be giving something to them and expecting something in return. And I was, this is in, in, in response to a good job. So there was one particular TA that I had, a teaching assistant, her name was Monjing Nan, and she said, no, 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 she didn't want a gift, no, 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 and it was starting to irritate me, and I finally said, I finally guessed, I said, Monjing Nan, is this because of Chinese culture, is it because if you think that if I gave you something as a gift at the end of the semester that you will then be obligated to give me something back, and she just answered me instantly, yes, so I figured takes a while to figure Chinese people out. You never really do, but that's that. That's what she was thinking. I give her something. I, I I was expecting something in return, which is not true. I was not expecting anything in return. But at any rate, Jesus said, "This is a principle: give and do not expect anything in return, because poor, maimed, lame, and blind people are not able to give you anything." And by the way, that's also an interesting exhortation to take care of the less fortunate in this world. I mean, the main point of the parable is don't give, don't give expecting something in return, I know. But also, secondary point, take care of the poor, the main, the lame, and the blind. When or should such a person come into your orbit of your, into the orbit of your life? Now, you're not going to get repaid by them in this life, but Jesus said you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That refers, of course, to the end of time when the quick and the dead are given their rewards. The living and the dead are given their rewards at the end of time. Now, this idea of the resurrection of the righteous at the end of time is extremely important in the scriptures. I really get into this because I got involved in a rip-roaring controversy with a bunch of hyper-predators who don't believe in the bodily resurrection at the end of time. And so, as heretics usually do, they drive you to the scripture to, to really get strong on the point that they're trying to attack so let's look at this fundamental teaching of Scripture, the resurrection of the dead. I was doing a teenage Bible study one time, and somebody in that Bible study asked me, are we going to get a new body? And she, was, she had diabetes, so it meant something to her. I said, absolutely you will. 
And I quoted her one of these verses I'm about to give you right now. Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to shame and eternal contempt. A contempt. John 5. This is the best one right here. John 5, 28 through 29. Do not be amazed at this because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. If you're in the graves, that means you have a body in the grave. It's dead. It ain't moving. And it's going to come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but to those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of judgment. So there you have the body resurrection. And I will point out to you a side note. This is a little theological aside. That notice the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment occur at the same time here in John 5:29. Whereas the premillennial scheme has a thousand years separating the resurrection of the good guys is at the first and then of the, of the so-called future millennium. And a thousand years later, there's a resurrection of the judgment at the end. But this verse, where's the thousand years that separates the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment? I don't see it. Moving on, Acts 24:15, And I have a hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, that there is going to be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. This was when Paul was in front of the Roman official there, and he was being accused by Pharisees and Sadducees, the Pharisees believing in the resurrection, the Sadducees not. And so, Jesus, and so Paul figures he's going to get them fighting each other. So he says, I believe there's a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous, both the righteous dead and the unrighteous. 1 Corinthians 15:12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Of course there is. 1 Corinthians 15:21 through 23. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. That will be Jesus. Verse 22 in 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. In other words, resurrected. But each in his order. Christ the first fruits. Afterward, it is coming those who belong to Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And Revelation 24 through 6, and this is a very difficult passage here, causes a lot of controversy, but let me just put it to you this way. These people who had not received the mark of the beast, those who followed God, they came to life and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years, and since I am... Not a pre-mill guy, and since I control the microphone, he who controls the microphone controls the spin. So I'm going to give you the non-pre-mill. I'm post-mill actually. Post-mill, non-mill works either way. Uh, I I'm going to give you that interpretation of this passage in Revelation 20. They came to life and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. That's believers. Thousand years being symbolic of the church age. They came to life spiritually and reigned with Jesus, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, reigning where Jesus also, Jesus also is. We're reigning spiritually in the church for a thousand years. Here's a parenthesis, verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. In other words, that's at the end of the church age. We'll have a resurrection of the dead. Going back after that parenthetical remark, this is the first resurrection. That means those who came to life and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years, those who got saved during the church age, that's the first resurrection. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. That means you and I are blessed and holy. The second death has no power over them. That means spiritual death. They, they, the physical death is when the first death. The second death is when they, they end up being separated from God forever. So anyway, but the point is, is verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. That's talking about the bad guys, the resurrection of the unjust. Hebrews 6, 2. 
teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead. Those are basic fundamental doctrines. One of the fundamental doctrines is the resurrection of the dead. And this is the verse that I used in my teenage Bible study, Philippians 3.21. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So you see, the resurrection of the dead is everywhere in the scriptures. It's part of the Nicene Creed. If you don't believe it, you are a heretic. And, of course, the Pharisees didn't disagree with this. They believed in the resurrection of the dead, so that was not a point of contention between Jesus and the Pharisees. All right. But again, remember, the main point is you give, not expect anything in return. That's that second parable. All right, we're going to go to the third parable now. Luke 14, verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him, one of these guests of the big shot Pharisee, they heard these things, he said to him, the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God is blessed. Now, why did he say it at this point? Well, because Jesus mentioned you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. He's talking about a banquet and getting repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And so he starts thinking about the kingdom of God when he hears that. And he talks about eating bread because eating bread was eating a meal was considered a symbol of the fellowship that we will get in the kingdom of God. That's easy to show from scripture and that's the way the Pharisees thought. Of course, they had an idea of the kingdom of God being a material, non-spiritual type kingdom, but just a earthly uh, material kingdom. But anyway, the Pharisees thought that way, so he said that. Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, he probably thought he was automatically qualified to go into that kingdom, which was not such a good idea. The NIV study Bible says what I just said. The association of a great future messianic feast with the kingdom of God was very common back then. Here's some scriptures that show this. Luke 13, verse 29. They will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. That's Jesus speaking, Isaiah 25, 6. The Lord of hosts will, will prepare a feast for all the peoples on this mountain, a feast of aged wine, choice meat, finely aged wine. There's the feast, the messianic feast, Matthew 8, 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven is associating with feasting. By the way, why do we have the Lord's Supper? That's supposed to be a feast, not a little sip and chip. That's total American or Western tradition. The original Lord's Supper was a full meal, a feast, and it was supposed to be symbolic of the kingdom of God, which we're in now in the church. And so every time we eat a full meal, we should be eating a full meal in the Lord's Supper, then that is a celebration of us being in the kingdom. Matthew 25, 1 through 10, then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins. And not to go through that whole story, you remember the bridegroom, they waited for the bridegroom to come back. Five of them were ready with the oil, five of them were foolish, did not have the oil. Verse 10, when they had gone to buy some oil, the groom arrived, and those who were ready went in with him to where? To the wedding banquet. The kingdom of heaven in verse 1 in Matthew 25, the kingdom of heaven is like, verse 10, a wedding banquet. A feast, Matthew 26, 29, but I tell you from this moment I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in a new way in my Father's kingdom with you. And by the way, I believe that Jesus actually does eat the Lord's Supper with us symbolically and metaphorically in the same way that the elders of Israel, including Moses, ate with God on Mount Sinai. It says God ate with them. Well, you know, God can't eat. He doesn't have a mouth. He doesn't have a hand. But it was symbolic of the fellowship, the communion. And when Jesus says, I will eat it in my Father's kingdom, I believe that the kingdom was already. And so, well, it is also going to be not yet, but it was already. It was established, the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, I'm going to eat it with you. And besides, aren't we the bride of Christ? The wedding of the church in 
and Jesus has already taken place, I assume, in Pentecost. When do you have a, if we're going to talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb, and that's going to be 2,000 plus years later in Revelation 19, well, since when do people have a wedding and wait 1,900, 2,000 plus years in order to have the marriage feast? They have the marriage feast at the time of the wedding. Well, we're married to Christ now. We're having the marriage feast now every time we have the Lord's Supper. Now, that's some creative theology. I know a lot of people aren't going to agree with that, but I think it's right. Speaking of that verse in Revelation 19.9, I'll read it. Then he said to me, Right, those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb are fortunate. He also said to me, These words of God are true. Those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. I think that's you and me, buddy. You and me, not those at the end of time. Now, let's examine what is the possible attitude of this man who asked the question, Blessed is the one who's going to eat bread in the kingdom of God. Well, we could assume he's spiritual. That's what it sounds like. Adam Clark says, suggests that he is the only one at the table that's thinking of the future kingdom of God. Well, that might be true. Adam Clark might be right. But even so, he didn't understand the spiritual requirements to get into the kingdom. He's probably, he, uh, the other option is he's not spiritual at all, but he's carnal. He's only thinking of a great, sumptuous, material feast. Hard to know what his attitude was. Given the fact that he was a Pharisee, I think he's just thinking about what he's going to get. Well, if he is thinking that way, that would be right after Jesus said, invite the poor, the maimed, and the lame, so that you can't get anything back in return. So if he is thinking that way, he sure didn't take to heart what Jesus just tried to teach, tried to teach him. Verses 16 through 20 of Luke chapter 14. Then he, Jesus, told him, told the man who said, Blessed is the one who eats bread in the kingdom of God. And now he's going to say, now wait a minute now, just because you think you're going to a banquet, just because there's going to be a banquet, don't think you are necessarily going to be at it. So I think this is another anti-Pharisee parable that he's getting ready to give. In verse 16, a man was giving a large banquet and invited many. Of course, that's God the Father giving a large banquet. That represents the eating at the kingdom of God. And he invited many to come. Many, lots of people, everybody. At the time of the banquet, he sent his slave to tell those who were invited, come because everything is ready. I'm assuming the slave refers to Jesus. He was the one that went out and told everybody, come, come into the kingdom. The kingdom of God is amongst you. Come, come, repent and enter into the kingdom. This is what Jesus was doing in his ministry. Verse 18, but without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Verse 19, another said, I brought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I just got married, and therefore I'm unable to come. Now, for years I've read this parable and thought those excuses were legitimate. And I always interpreted the parable by saying, well, even with legitimate excuses, there's one reason that trumps all legitimate excuses, and that's the kingdom of God. you got to put that ahead of everything else, including marriage, including work. But... After looking at this with the help of some commentaries and the NIV study, my NIV study Bible notes, I have come to realize that these excuses are bogus. First, of, and think about it. The first excuse was, "I got to go see my field. I bought a field. I got to go look at it." Well, first of all, before we even say that, let's talk about the Jewish custom about invitations to banquets. The invitation would go out in advance of the banquet, so that people would be getting ready for it, and then when the banquet was actually in place and ready to go, they would send out another note and say, okay, then we're ready now, you can come, and that would usually be at night because the banquets were at night. So usually the 
the invitation, not the initial invitation, but the announcement that it was uh, that the bank was was ready to go, that would be at night. And so this man would be saying, "I've got to go look at my field at night." Well, that's that's not going to happen. Nobody's going to look at their field at night. Point number one. Point number two is, when he bought the field, didn't look at the field then. What's he need to go look at it again? Is the field really going to have changed that much since he bought it that he can't go to a banquet? Is it going to change that much in one night that he can't go out, that he can't go to a banquet because something bad might be happening to his field? Maybe there's some erosion going on there. Maybe there's a lightning storm. I mean, you know, that's, that just makes no sense. It's a phony excuse. Verse 19, another said, I have brought five yoke of oxen. I'm assuming that means two oxen in each yoke, ten, ten oxen. I'm not dead sure of that, but I think that's what the English means. So, but at any rate, he bought these oxen. He's going to try them out. Again, if it's at nighttime, when the announcement is made, uh-uh. He's not going to look at oxen at night. Now, it could be that he's responding in, in response to the invitation, which would be in advance and in the daytime. So that objection wouldn't hold. But leaving that aside, when he bought the oxen, he would have already tried them out. Nobody buys five yoke of oxen without trying them out. So he's saying, i got to go do something I've already done. That's a bogus excuse. The third excuse was, I just got married. I can't come to your banquet. What is marriage? Why does getting married keep you from going to a banquet? The typical custom would be then, yeah, sure, come, bring your wife. No problem. Marriage is not going to stop you from going to a party. So you see, these people are making excuses. They had this beautiful banquet they go to, and they got better things to do. And the whole point of this is Jesus is telling them about the kingdom of God, the eating the, the messianic kingdom in the, the messianic meal in the kingdom of God. And these people got something better to do. And they're making up stupid reasons because they just really don't want to go. They just don't want to go be with the man who was given the banquet. This, of course, describes the Jews perfectly. Now, we go to verses 21 through 23 of Luke 14. So the slave came back and reported these things to his master. The slave being Je it refers to Jesus, seeing that the people don't want to come into the banquet he goes back and reports those things to the guy given the banquet, the master that refers to God. Then in anger, the master of the house, that's God, told his slave, told Jesus, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in, bring in here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. So that's the streets and alleys of the city. That would be Jerusalem. And so this is the people who are not, the Jews who are not Pharisees and Sadducees, the big shots and rulers. They're the ordinary Jews who believe in Jesus. Bring them in. Master, verse 22, Master, God, the slave, Jesus said, what you ordered has been done, and there's still room. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, I've preached to all the Jews here in, in Israel, and all who were not Pharisees and Sadducees, all who were not of this arrogant class of ruling Jews, they've come in, and there's still more room. Well, what, what's the more room? More room for whom? Verse 23, then the master told the slave, go out into the highways. Now, the highways are the roads leading out of the city of Jerusalem, out of Israel, which refers to the Gentiles, go out into the highways and lanes and make them come in so that my house may be filled. So Jesus is saying, believing Jews and Gentiles are going to be in my house. Now notice that Jesus says, make them come in. Now that means make them come in by the sheer joy of the attraction of the gospel. It doesn't mean that Jesus went out there and put a gun, or that Jesus' apostles went out and put a gun to people's heads and said, convert, come to the banquet. No, it means to compel them. As the King James has compelled them to come in. It just means by the sheer beauty and joy of the banquet, of course you're going to come. It doesn't mean that you're forced to come. It means that you're highly attracted to come. 
This idea of making people come into the kingdom was used for years throughout Western medieval history. The Catholic Church forced conversions. I remember, who was it? Uh, who was the guy? Who was the guy in France? The early Frank. Can't remember his name now. Famous guy, famous king, lined up all the Franks and said, convert to Jesus. All the, then they're pagans now. They're rough and ready pagans. He says, convert to Jesus or I'm going to kill you. And, of course, they all converted. Well, that's not going to really get a lot of buy-in to the Christian faith when you convert people like that. All right, we'll finish up with verse 24. For I tell you, not one of these men who were, were invited will enjoy my banquet. In other words, the Pharisees, they're not going to come in. Jesus is basically telling them, look, guys, look, you guys, at this banquet. You're all going to hell. And the Gentiles are going to replace you in heaven at the Messianic feast. Jesus did not mince his words, folks. He was not a seeker-friendly sort of guy. All right, we finish with this audio, Luke chapter 14, 1 through 24. In our next audio, we will discuss one of the most challenging scriptures in the Bible, which is where Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship. Are you willing to bear your cross to your death to follow me? So we'll see you in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.